Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to August edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Before we start, I'd just like to mention the Fast Markets European Battery Raw Materials Conference, which is taking place in Amsterdam on the 19th and 20th of September. It's a great opportunity to hear from industry leaders across the supply chain, and I will be there as well. Now, without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, and we're going to run through some of the key talking points from the last month. Hi, Cormac. Hi, Matt. Nice to catch up again. No breaks again. No summer holidays. Thought we were going to get the August off as well, but uh, you're a tough slave master. A slave driver. Well, it's it's all the um, all the listeners, you know, when, when I don't present, they sort of go, they email me and say, Matt, where's the recharge? I, I'd like to see it, please. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you should have the same automatic reply I'm getting. It's August. Email me back in September. That's yeah, I, keep I, I should try that one. But the problem was we already took uh, we already took June off. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we can take August as well. So I mean, lots of uh, lots of news flow over the last four or five weeks or so. Well, let's start in China. A couple of really interesting moves. I think for me, one of the most interesting, sort of looking in from outside was the Volkswagen investment in Xpeng, the Chinese EV manufacturer. And I think given the news that we've had in the early part of August about another investment by Ford, I think it was in Chongqing, it seems that we're starting to see Western world OEMs trying to partner up with China Inc. And this is a really interesting sort of about face because obviously 15 or 20 years ago when China was just opening up, we saw the Chinese OEMs looking to partner up with the Western world OEMs to bring intellectual property and know-how in in automaking into the Chinese industry. It now looks like we're seeing a complete reversal of that and we're seeing that the Western OEMs are trying to bring know-how into the for EV making into the Western industry. That just kind of tickled me pink a little bit. Bit opposite day, all right. But this is the original goal of the Chinese government, right? Uh, we're not going to win the ICE war, but EVs. Their goal is to be the seen as the Germany, so to speak, of EVs. I think they're well on the way. Although this, the pricing on this investment has got me astounded. Seven hundred million for five percent of Xpeng, who yeah. produce less than ten thousand cars a month, and have. Still, uh, and have been, uh, you know, had all the same problems as all other OEMs in terms of access to chips, access to batteries. It's tough in China at the moment for an Xpeng would still be seen as an EV startup. I mean, as we've seen a number of EV startups go to the wall in the BMR, for example, you quoted the, uh, or shown the, the Byton, it's gone to the wall. Yeah. Evergrande, for example, yeah. is uh, probably going to go under. So yeah, Xpeng, uh, you got Ideal and you got Neo, and it just I thought it was an unusual investment in Xpeng. They probably win out on the software side of thing rather than on the capability of producing a car. I think. I guess maybe it's for the um, it's for the sort of IP side of things. I think it's going to be very very interesting. We've spoken on the on the podcast many times about how the Chinese technology, the sort of look and feel of the cars 
in China is is vastly different from what you get in the Western world at EVs. And they just seem to be sort of head and shoulders more advanced than anything really apart from a Tesla. I think it's really interesting to see the Western world OEMs start to make these investments. And as you say, the valuation is pretty interesting. It's pretty funky, isn't it? Yeah, it's nuts. You know, the big game changer for China was Tesla coming to town. That Tesla is still having trouble with their European plants. China, they're already in discussions of building a super factory too in another province, Zhenghou. This really drove the whole industry to be a lot more competitive. You, you can see the kind of tactics Tesla used to sell EVs up there, not only in technology, but on price. And it really forced all these Chinese EV makers to up their game. I think it's very interesting that, that Tesla is going ahead with a second gigafactory in China when they're clearly having problems with Berlin and, and operating in Germany. And I wonder if that might be an interesting sort of forewarning for some of the Chinese EV makers and battery midstream materials makers that have announced projects in, in Europe, because it's clearly more difficult to operate in Europe than perhaps people understand coming from outside. But Chinese are kind of operating outside Europe a little bit. Yeah. Well, they are now, but yeah, I mean, yeah, there yeah. have been a number of announcements, obviously CATL already in Hungary, but there have been announcements BYD. I think last month in BMR, mm -hmm. we reported, um, I think Poutelet's got a big project and other cathode oh, yeah. makers are looking to develop projects in Europe, in mainland Europe. So it's going to be really interesting to see how easy those companies find it to actually operate in Europe. Don't think they're going to find it too easy. I'm in contact with a few of them and they're a little puzzled. They're not able to replicate, especially the material producers, the can plants that they have in China. Not that they can't build it, but it's, they can't build it under European policies, basically. To, you can't mm. build a 100,000 ton uh, graphite processing plant. So it's, they're finding it difficult and looking for, you know, today, looking for local partners. Even in equipment, they're happy to work with European uh, producers of furnaces. But of course, that's going to take their costs up. So, you know, yeah. if, they, if they're going to have to work with local partners and obviously also the cost of regulation, you know, you're taking on a huge regulatory burden to, to function in Europe as opposed to in other regions in the world. So it's going to be very interesting to see how those Chinese OEMs and, and cathode and anode makers who are used to, to working with pretty minimal regulation will find it in Europe. And of course, there's also this, this new European requirement coming in to quantify the CO2 burden of your products yeah. and, and, and quantify the ESG burden of your products. And I think that's going to be particularly interesting, particularly for those companies that are sourcing their nickel from Indonesia, for instance, potentially there their graphite from China. So uh, yeah, I, I'm going to be interested to see whether that changes purchasing trends in the industry. Yeah, the carbon border. Yeah. Chinese are well aware of it. Also uh, developing strategies, I think, to uh, not to get around it, but to be compliant. A lot of moves down in uh, Latin America, South America, especially uh, Chinese are BYD's building a LFP plant. There's uh, talks of camp plants in, in Argentina. They believe uh, operating out of these jurisdictions will help them comply with border uh, carbon borders in uh, Europe. Be interesting to see. And I, I, I guess from the other point of, of China sort of moving offshore, in this case, trying to get into the US, we reported in BMR this month about uh, how um, 
Chinese, particularly cathode makers, are, are announcing major investments in Korea as a way to effectively get into uh, become IRA compliant with US assets. And I think something like $5 billion of projects and JVs has now been announced in Korea. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether that becomes IRA compliant, how successful those projects are. And I think it's, it's very clear that the, that the US is going to have to be pretty careful about policing IRA compliance going forward, because we're hearing about, you know, Chinese companies investing in Korea, we're hearing about them investing in Morocco, uh, potentially in Europe, to take advantage of existing or likely free trade agreements with with the US to allow them to access the US market through the IRA. And it's very clear that the IRA, I don't think can be set in stone. It's got to be moving and adapting to what's going on in the world and, and different strategies. Yeah, it's definitely a moving target, all right. The JVs have to be, I think it's a less than 24% Chinese owned to be IRA compliant. And I believe that is the current status. So, um, you know, they have to be mindful of that when they go and set up the uh, JVs with the, with the Koreans. Um, they, they can only own 20, less than 24% of the company, I believe. Great. Talking about sort of majors, uh, not so much Chinese majors sort of getting into the, the space and going upstream, some really interesting um, news flow out in July in terms of commodities majors looking to get into the upstream of the industry. We saw, I think, Pan American Energy, which is an oil producer, lock up lithium exploration land in Argentina. It obviously is following in the footsteps of ExxonMobil and YPF and, and Plus Petrol. And Chevron, there's talk that Chevron is also interested in lithium. From my point of view, that's very interesting because obviously these oil companies are not wanting for capital. If they want to drop, you know, a billion, two billion on DLE brine project, and, and that seems to be the sort of project that they're targeting, then uh, they can easily afford to to drop a billion or two billion into DLE brine projects. So that's the sort of, I guess that's the sort of investment that we need to see in the DLE part of the business, because certainly over the last two to three months, the studies that have come out are talking about capex totals of a billion, billion and a half dollars. And, you know, that's not bite size for a junior miner. There aren't too many junior miners that are going to be able to afford capex of a billion, billion and a half dollars for a, DA, a new DLE project. So I think if the oil companies come into DLE, I think that'll be, you know, very helpful. And potentially it may push development faster because obviously they'll have more cash to drop into to action those projects. So fingers crossed on that one. And then, of course, the other one that's that's very interesting is Rio Tinto which has signed, I think, three deals on the lithium side over the last two or three months and a change of strategy from Rio Tinto. So, of course, uh, I think everybody in the industry knows that they were knocked back on the JDAR project in Serbia. They then went in and, and uh, acquired a, a brine, a DLE brine development in Argentina. But now they seem to be sort of pushing back more to the early stage of the industry and, and focusing on a hard rock. And they signed three exploration deals or very early stage deals, two in Quebec and, and one in Rwanda, that's a famous lithium producing region, 
so I think that's very interesting. And, and and Rio is really the only one of the major miners that seems to be active in this space. Quite possible. Why, why are they getting in on the early stage of developments, uh, which um, still a long way? Could they move further up on the investment? I think they said that they think that um, valuations are too high at the moment. But I mean, I think the thing, the fact that they are looking at early stage investments suggests that they feel that there's a longevity to the lithium cycle that perhaps other mining companies don't feel there is who are outside the space. I mean, Glencore's come out recently, BHP's on record as saying that they don't believe the lithium cycle will be prolonged because they think that there's enough material in the system. Whereas Rio is saying, well, if we're investing in early stage assets, which probably won't be in production for 10 to 15 years, we've obviously got a lot more faith that the supernormal prices in lithium will continue over the longer term. So I think in terms of what they're saying by not saying, I think that's an interesting move from my point of view. Yeah, I thought this would be the last we hear of Rio after Jadar. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, glad um, to see they're pursuing. You know, over the years I've been offered uh, many opportunities in Africa uh, with uh, lithium assets. And uh, looking at this, I wish I had given the £10 for one of them. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, this is, uh, they were Rwanda when I was there. It's uh, quite interesting. Rwanda, I mean, obviously, we've got the Mali development projects. Kodal has has a joint venture with the Chinese company. Leo Lithium, again, Ganfeng is in there, uh, and that's pushing towards sort of DSO, early stage production. We've obviously got DRC. We've got the Manono project, which is stuck in sort of development hell and, and legal issues at the moment. We've got Atlantic Lithium in Ghana. I understand there's potential for some projects in Cameroon. There's lots going on wow. in lithium in Africa. You've obviously got graphite in East Africa. There's potential for lithium in, in South Africa, I understand. There's nickel. So there's lots going on in Africa if you can stomach the political risk of some of these jurisdictions, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Rio could, could stomach it. Chinese definitely can. Some of those projects have been cancelled. Oh, and uh, I forgot Zimbabwe. I mean, how could oh, I forget right, Zimbabwe yeah. where we've actually got, you know, a number of projects into production now, mostly sponsored by the Chinese, to be fair, because, again, yeah. it's still very difficult for Western companies to focus on Zimbabwe and Namibia. There's quite a lot going on also in lithium. So, you know, there's there's definitely a lot going on. Cobalt in the DRC and in Morocco. About, so, uh, you know, there's manganese. lots of... What do you got manganese, manganese as well in South Africa, so yeah. and Gabon and uh, and and you know West Africa. So there's lots of really exciting opportunities in Africa. It's a question of finding the right the right project and the right jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Seems to be um, a lot of these projects seem to suffer from huge delays, right? In terms of building out equipment, machinery, failures in equipment, machinery, power to mines. I mean, there's still the traditional African uh, issues going on there, right? Well, I think in, in the lithium projects that have been developed so far, I think infrastructure is an issue as well in some of them. I mean, certainly the, the landlocked projects in a DRC in Mali, that's a thousand kilometers plus in some cases to the coast. So that's substantial as well. So uh, not in an environment, obviously, where spodcom prices are sort of three and a half, four thousand dollars a ton, but in an environment where they fell back below two thousand dollars a ton in in people's long term pricing environments, then 
that could become substantial over time. So I think it's um, it's very interesting to see you know how these how these projects develop. There's no getting away from the fact that that, that Africa um, has got some absolutely excellent geology and and probably some very very viable battery raw material projects. I see a lot of the processing seems to, of these materials that's anticipated for Europe will be towards North Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, so to speak. For I think electro materials are building a nickel refinery in is it Saudi Arabia? Yes, I mean I think there are refinery projects planned for for Saudi Arabia. Obviously, you've got pretty cheap power because of all the gas production. I think where Europe's got to be a little bit careful is is trying to impose its own version of EV ESG. metals, not electra, sorry. EV yeah. metals, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, its own interpretation of ESG on, on other countries. I was talking to a, um, a developer in a, in a metal that I, I shan't disclose because otherwise their, their name will be clear, who has a project in Africa. And uh, he was saying they were trying to source funding from a, from a European banking organization. And they were told that they wouldn't get money because the grid in this country was primarily derived from from coal-fired power. And his comment back to the European banking organization was, fine, if we switch to renewable power, what are we going to do about all of the coal miners who are going to lose their jobs because of that? And it's it's just things like that, you know, you might get a tick on the environmental side of things, but on the social side, you've you've made a huge error and a huge disaster for all, all of the workers in that coal industry. So I think it's just it's just things like that that Europe has to be a little bit careful of in imposing its own ESG criteria on other countries where, you know, things may not be the same, shall we say. Yeah, well, not sure. Europe is the same either, but on paper, it is one way, but the um, actual on the ground can be quite different. But um, this is going to all come to head in about four or five years when the metals just aren't there uh, for Europe. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about China. Lots going on there. What what sort of, what do you think of the, the, the two or three picks of the month? Well, still waiting for lithium carbonate to pick up on price, except it seems to be continuing downward spiral. You not know, a death spiral, though. Not a death spiral, but uh, yeah, expecting inventories to be destocked by now and and restocking to take place for, as we discuss every year now, the big rush in December to uh, EV sales, usually traditionally in China, one of the bigger months for car sales. And just not to, even though imports are still up, battery production remained relatively flat, EV sales relatively flat, actually slightly down even. In July, and uh, yeah, and again. I mean, I think uh, the good news is that inventories are coming down. I mean, if we look at our sort of inventory tracking series for yeah. lithium carbonate, certainly for EVs, EV inventories are down in the last six months. Lithium carbonate inventories are down quite substantially in the last three months. Hydroxide inventories are, have been low anyway. Inventories are starting to come into. Con- under control in the system. I think one of the big issues, particularly on the carbonate side of things, is that there is clear overcapacity now in the LFP supply chain. And I think that's going to impact the sort of profitability. So there's lots of sort of extra LFP cells sitting around. 
they may very well not be tier one and tier two cells. Uh, so they may not be viable to be used in, in EVs. They may only be viable to use for ESS and stuff. But cell inventories are still at relatively high levels. And I say again, you know, mostly in the LFP supply chain. So that's probably one of the reasons why carbonate prices are, are still heading south. Hydroxide prices in China, spot prices have been weak but not really in the rest of the world. And, and really, you know, hydroxide is a, uh, and, and ternary batteries is more a rest of the world phenomenon. It's not such a, a big business in China as it is in rest of the world, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's a, a good takeaway. People often watch the ternary NMC cam production in China and they notice it's quite low. And the gauge from that, that, sales and NMC batteries are low, but as you pointed out, most of the cam production, NMC cam production is done in Korea. And that's why there's low volumes of NMC in China. Uh, you know, what, what I found interesting during the month, uh, you might have more comment on it, is the Guangzhou futures market contract went set up in, in <laughs> oh, July. Yeah. And, and yeah, they that, carbonite that generated prices, some interesting yeah, uh, have been hovering around this price, uh, hovering around the contract price. And it, yeah. so immediately when that when they opened uh, the spot price went to the contract price. What, what's that about? I really find it a, a struggle because obviously that 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 um, those futures and also the Wuchi futures generate a lot of column inches. But if you look at, you know, how much material it actually represents, it's a tiny it's a tiny proportion of material and, you know, 90, 99% probably of the industry is still trading on contracts, pricing contracts between producers and consumers. And it's just not related to those prices at all. And those prices don't bear any resemblance to actual industry contracts. So it's a real struggle yeah. to find anything constructive to say <laughs> when, when people ask you about those things. But, uh, you know, I mean, the, the new... The new future contract is a physically backed contract. Yeah. So one assumes that there's going to be quite substantial arbitrage opportunities in that if it does trade down. And obviously, you know, contract prices don't trade down. So yeah, it would be very interesting to see how that sort of how that beds out going forward. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, physically delivered is quite interesting, right? There could be a lot of stockpiling inventories in Guangzhou. I think that for the time being, it's it's pretty small, but it, but if it does, you know, gain acceptance uh, going forward, it it could become quite significant. So you know, it's definitely a watch this space. But for for the early sort of two or three months, I think it's an uh, irrelevant. But uh, we'll see if it if it gains in size, and if it gains in size, it could become an important data point for the industry. Definitely, yeah. It's just like what was it like. Got as you said, column inches in China this month. It was one of the uh, more interesting stories in the uh, lithium space. I'm reading in China the there's a revert. I don't know if it's a revert or a trend, but long term contracts coming back again, as opposed to the uh, futures market or the spot market. Um, are you hearing anything on that? Well, I think I think it's it's sort of normal behavior. I mean, long term contracts look nice for the for the major producers because they take out the sort of price volatility that we've seen and you know if you're a major producer you you like to have shorter term contracts when price is going up but when prices are going down or or fluctuating you'd rather have longer term project contracts and if you're yeah. a, if you're a consumer 
obviously it's nicer to have longer term contracts because then you know what your cost structure is going to look like over the sort of medium to longer term so i think if if lithium prices are going to continue to be quite volatile on a quarter by quarter basis as they have been over the last sort of two or three quarters then i wouldn't be surprised to see some of the players embracing sort of longer term contracts and whether those will be i mean realistically what we've seen in other materials is maybe sort of six months to a year contracts i mean i think that the contracts that were there in the lithium market before is sort of three or four years those have gone but you might have a situation whereby companies sign up sort of annual pricing contracts really to to try and control the liquidity the volatility in in prices because it doesn't benefit anybody really if prices are so so volatile and particularly not if they're volatile and high because that really impacts the economics of the ev industry altogether so i haven't heard of long-term contracts but i wouldn't be surprised if some of the big brine producers in latin america etc started looking at them again interesting okay yeah yeah that first time around when they when they missed the uh the cycle if i don't know if we're still in it i already missed it mm. <laughs> i thought super cycles last a number of years though so uh well super cycles uh, do last yeah. a number of years but i think i think the point about super cycles is they're still cycles so yeah. there's going to be periods when prices will be high there's going to be periods at the moment when prices are going to drift off and they're going to be low the question for producers and consumers is whether they're happy with that sort of volatility or whether they want to lo- lock in you know longer pricing uh longer term pricing and uh you know i think some producers and consumers are, are fine with a little bit more volatility but others want a slightly easier life and uh it's going to be interesting to see whether we get um you know some producers and consumers rolling back i mean to be fair if you if you listen to the quarterly results by albemarle and sqm and live end they all talked about a percentage of long-term contracts still in their in their sales books as it were so it's not like all of these long-term contracts were out already i got you okay okay makes sense just looking over here see if i have anything uh yeah so probably quite summer in battery production one interesting um factor is just again uh and we can see it with the uh, semi-annual reports that chl for example is operating at 60 percent factory utilization and it was something similar last year so they had like 100 gigawatt hours of uh, a cells left over last year that they had to destock at the start of this year. And at these kind of utilization rates in China, what are we going to see when the European and, uh, and, and US factories are built? Are they going to be ad- operating at 100% util- uh, utilization? I think this is a core concern for the battery industry. And I particularly see it on the LFP side in China, that in the near term, we've got quite a lot of overcapacity coming into the industry. And if you've dropped one and a half, two billion dollars into a new cell plant and you can't run it over 60% capacity utilization, you're potentially going to be losing money on it, particularly if raw material prices are high and volatile. That has to be a concern for some of the producers. I mean, it's not to say that capacity utilization won't improve because obviously as ev sales continue to rise over time then there'll be more demand for cells and capacity utilization can improve but 
in a lot of these factories, because there's been so much overinvestment, particularly on the LFP side of the supply yeah. chain, we are moving into an environment where certainly in the tier two, tier three, tier four spaces, we're likely to see huge overcapacity. And I think people have to be very wary that probably a lot of these companies, particularly the single plant developers, may very well go bust over the medium term. Because you if you've raised one and a half, two billion dollars and your plant runs at 60% capacity utilization, you're not going to be making enough money to pay back the debts that you've taken on to build that plant. So I think we're likely to see quite a lot of consolidation yeah. in right. the you know cell manufacturing space in China going forward. And I, I, I think we're, we're now starting to get to the point in in the Western world where we don't really need to see too many more cell plant announcements. We need to sort of bed in the ones we've got because I saw an interview with Simon Moores recently, and he said that the benchmark cell manufacturing monitor is up to something like 399 gigafactories by 2030. That's more than we're going to need. Either we see closures of some obsolete plants, or we see closures of some new plants that can't meet their debt yeah. commitment. But we, we're going to have to see closures because there's more there's more capacity under development than we need. I mean, we track this every month in the um, in our battery monitor in, in in battery materials review. We currently got think something like two times the amount of gigafactory announcements of raw materials yeah. supply one and two battery demand forecasts. So, can these plants operate at forty to fifty percent? No not going to be profitable. So it's going to be a very interesting situation, but I think a lot of the smaller cell manufacturers are going to fall by the wayside over the next couple of years. Yeah, agree. I'm in the, you know, the gigafactory production equipment side of things as well. So visiting laser notching, laser welding companies, stacking companies, assembly, full production lines. You're talking about lithium ion gigafactories. There's no one building notching gigafactory to make the uh the die cutters and and the welding equipment for the tab tab welding our assembly so the, the investment one step below in equipment is not there so there's not going to be enough equipment available to fill 120 gigafactories there's already huge delays right now and and they're not building bigger stacking equipment factories gigafactories to build the gigafactories is not happening on the equipment yeah. side of things I mean, this is one of the things that routinely comes on when people talk about solid state batteries. I mean, obviously, the industry now been talking about solid state batteries for what, going on 10 years, I guess. But certainly, you know, when the previous round of SPACs sort of came up into the industry over the last three or four years, and, and I went back and I did my channel checks, and all of the equipment manufacturers are like, well, there's just not the equipment in existence to build these solid state batteries at commercial level. And I think people need to consider the battery value chain on on all of its all of its yeah. levels not just the raw materials but also the equipment manufacturers and and it comes out very clearly if you look at the equipment manufacturing space that there just isn't enough yeah. investment going into the equipment so manufacturing there's probably space. only five equipment manufacturers per production step uh, that can actually supply a state of the art gigafactory i mean uh, there's not a lot out there really and I'm mm. not sure these gigafactory announcements are taking that into consideration. Yeah, well, I think it's very easy to announce that you're going to do a gigafactory, but uh, a, little, a little bit more difficult to actually 
build said gigafactory and and i think you know there are um, assumptions at various stages of the in the industry that you know you build it and the suppliers will be there but in a very immature industry that's not necessarily the case and we've seen that that's that's certainly not the case in raw materials and maybe we're about to see the case see that it's definitely not the case in battery manufacturing equipment as well and also the quality high quality battery equipment manufacturers are tied up they might be partly owned by for example lg camera sk or they are their main vendor and it'd be very difficult to source that equipment for a startup probably wouldn't even answer the phone they're that busy Thanks very much. That's a really interesting perspective. Just a flag that this month's feature in um, Battery Materials Review is on silicon carbide. Not strictly a battery raw material, but a very, very important material for electrification and particularly for the ability of electric vehicles to fast charge and increase efficiency. I had a thought about that if you just want to Often on this channel, we're talking about making smaller battery, uh, smaller EVs, smaller battery packs, and um, you know the potential for silicon carbide crunch is there. But if we, if you don't build a 800 volt or fast or need fast charging capabilities, there's more of a mass consumer of a 400 volt EV pack. Would that potentially be disruptor to silicon carbide? I think that the silicon carbide story is there whether we go all 800 volt or not, we need to have greater amounts of silicon carbide in and around the battery. But obviously, if we go 800 volts, that's even more supportive of, of silicon carbide. But, oh, yeah, definitely, you know, yeah, yeah. having silicon carbide around the battery means that you can have potentially smaller batteries for a given range because it increases efficiency. Importantly, it, it means that you require less cooling equipment, so your weight is less and it can impact the vehicle cost by up to $2,000 a vehicle. So it's, it's very, very important enabler for the electrification sort of revolution. I just think that um, perhaps people sort of think that all of the funky stuff that's going on is going on in the battery. It's not. It's going on also around the battery and in the vehicle. And, you know, things like silicon carbide can have impact on the amount of copper that you're using in the vehicle can have impact on on other semiconductors and everything and can have a big impact on the economic viability of electric vehicles particularly as it becomes more commoditized so i mean at the moment you know silicon carbide price is quite high over yeah. time as more capacity goes into the industry they will come down and as it becomes more commoditized as as a material it's going to enable a lot more development in in electric vehicles. So I think it's a it's a really really important material for the energy transition, shall we say, and probably not one that's well appreciated by a lot of our readers and listeners. Yeah, energy storage the same. You know, the other worry about silicon is it's completely dominated in China in terms for solar modules especially. I'm growing silicon ingots and silicon wafers is basically China, Taiwan, and Europe. Is it on the critical metals list? I guess silicon is actually. No, I, silicon? I don't know. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if it's on the critical metals list. I mean, silicon, silicon carbide are difficult products to make because they're yeah. very um, power intensive and you have to, to grow these crystals. I mean, you're, you're talking maybe a couple of weeks at very high temperature. Yeah. So um, they are pretty um, power intensive to make. But we, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of silicon carbide development in the US, some in Europe, in the upstream part of the industry. We are seeing huge growth in China. 
but uh, it's certainly an industry that at the moment the western world has dominated so it, it has the potential to be an important important industry in the west i think and i think the west knows now not to give up its upstream industries to china so easily as perhaps it has done over the last 20 years as long as it doesn't go the same way as solar modules then which uh <laughs> yes, almost impossible to import into the us now <laughs> fingers crossed brilliant i guess we'll call it a day there and i will say thank you very much to cormac and uh we'll talk next month chat you next month matt so that brings us to the end of our podcast for August. As always, you can get more detail on all of the topics we've discussed and indeed many more that we don't have time to discuss on a monthly basis in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can subscribe to at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.